Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Stephen Long. Welcome to The X Factor. This is the podcast for leaders by leaders. I'm speaking with Sherry Orlowitz today, and she's a owner of a private equity firm, but she's got her hands into a bunch of other things. So, uh, Sherry, why don't you tell everybody uh, who you are and what you do? Sure, Steve. Um, Artemis Holdings is our investment firm. We invest exclusively today in the cannabis industry. Um, making usually seed and Series A investments. And my focus has been for the last um, three years on the Council for Federal Cannabis Regulation. Um, that council is brings stakeholders, not just cannabis industry people, together with federal regulatory agencies in order to create a safe and accessible industry. And in fact, I just had the pleasure to talk to Dr. Janet Woodcock, the principal deputy, and FDA will be appearing on our webinar at um, uscfcr.com on October 27th at one o'clock. And it is the first time that the FDA cannabis products um, group is actually speaking to the industry. So it's going, it, it pretends to be an excellent um, opportunity for all to understand how the FDA is involved in the regulation of cannabis. Wow. You know, that's that's fascinating because, uh, you know, as we were speaking beforehand, uh, I, I, I told you that uh, I uh, while I was pursuing my uh, Ph.D. at the University of Kansas, I was the drug education instructor for the athletic department. And all the athletes uh, were required to take my class called Drugs and Sport. And we focused uh, not only on recreational drugs, but also performance enhancing drugs. But I came out of that class, you know, after teaching two years of it and understanding the research that cannabis was so much more healthy uh, and, you know, than, than just about anything else that, that I covered in that class. And but growing up as an athlete and, uh, you know, having the stigma attached, you know, to cannabis, you know, how, you know it, it took me that class to say, you know, weed's not that bad. And it, there's actually some really great, you know, great effects from it. So how are you fighting that stigma and releasing? Because, you know, I live in Colorado and, you know, that stigma doesn't exist here in Colorado, but I know it exists in other parts of the country. Oh, my goodness. It exists everywhere. People think that cannabis is an evil weed. Um, I understand where it comes from. The government ran an excellent PR campaign to run it off the face of the earth, but like all plants, it um, grew back, or like some plants, it grew back. And um, the United States taking another look at it. And that look requires folks that understand the federal government. I am a former DOJ lawyer. I've worked for state. I've worked for commerce. I've worked with our president. And at the end of the day, um, we will have a cannabis industry. And how it develops, in part, is going to be part of our responsibility to work with people. And it is a medicine. It has um, many medicinal qualities. Um, certain, some of it is anecdotal. Some of it is um, actually scheduled drugs, such as Epidiolex. That is a pure cannabis drug. It's CBD in sesame oil. And that molecule is capable of addressing intractable epileptic seizures. And it has given relief and given back the lives to so many people. So that's just one molecule of over 400 or 500, depending on how you count. Wow, wow, that's, uh, that's amazing. I think there's so many things that we don't know. So, you know, so you're in this, you know, you're in this industry and it's a growing industry. 
and it's a young industry. So, and you know, you're a leader of it, you know, because of your background and and and, and where you're located. And uh, so, what is the best aspect of being a leader? Being the best, being a leader is you don't have to answer to other people. Um, I used to think that was wonderful because you know, if I had to answer to people, I would not work. Mm-hmm. Not because I am not collaborative, but because I always have so many ideas that I would drive someone nuts. So Mm -hmm. frankly, being a leader gives me the opportunity to develop ideas with really bright people, such as I'm doing with this council, to um, understand the medicinal properties of of marijuana. And we have uh, science people, we have lawyers, we have policy people, um, and actually some of the top professionals in their field both in uh, science, policy, law. And, um, you know, you get to do things like that. And one of the things that really um, moves me with regard to this is the chance to create opportunity for folks that uh, have been marginalized or have been um, hurt by unwise cannabis laws. And that is something that the federal government is in an incredible position to do through its federal agency, the SBA. And I am really looking forward because opportunity without money is not a whole lot of opportunity. But the SBA, which is a federal agency, the Small Business Administration, gives loans and grants and training and uh, mentoring, and it's a, it's a wonderful agency. And so being a leader gives me the opportunity to try and make the world a better place. And yeah, create that, that openness, that, you know, that you know, wide barriers, if you will, I think is really important as far as just expressing the curiosity that we all have. And, you know, I, um, I, I had an earlier Zoom call with a former client and she's a, uh, she, she has a startup. And I said, you know, what, what, you know, how did your behavior change? She says, you know, one thing as a leader, you know, I don't ask people, well, what do you think? Because they're just going to tell me what I want to know. Right. And she's and so so I changed from you know, tell me where you think we can get better. Okay, which oh you know which is just an openness type of question, you know. And it seems like we can you know I think that's something that all good leaders do is that you find yourself as a leader looking for that openness. But I think you know as a leader like yourself is that yeah you don't have to answer to anybody, but people have to answer to you. Yeah, but that that whole thing of openness, I think, just permeates your organization. Well, you know, it's interesting. People in a collaborative setting, people do not answer to me. I, I, I absolutely try to set the, if you will, the atmospheres, atmosphere. I try to set the um, values. I try to set the ideals of the organization. But I really look to the folks that I work with. And I don't work, they don't work for me in any way, shape or form. They work with me um, because they have so much more expertise than I do. Uh And they're the ones who really are shaping this organization. I'm sort of a conductor. Mm -hmm. I am bringing the instruments of safe and accessible industry together, but they really are the ones to whom I answer. (laughs) You know, I just keep on running into that with really you know, effective leaders is that they hire people who are smarter than they are. 
you know, and they don't have that ego where they have to be the smartest person in the world, you know, or smartest person in the room. And I'm wondering, you know, where did you learn that? Or how do you attribute that, you know, that, that quality that, that you either acquired or that you have naturally? Stephen, I went from turning companies around, and I think you probably know that doing turnarounds of manufacturing companies, which is what I did for 20 years, was not a collaborative experience. At the end of the day, I was responsible for my and other people's money. And so at the, I had to make sure that um, things were going the way they had to go. It was never collaborative. And so this has been quite a learning experience. And part of it is how, this, how our, our society has changed. You probably remember Sunbeam Al. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Chainsaw Al. Exactly. Al Dunlop. And exactly. That was my model. Uh, wow. um, and I actually went up to Bitterford and looked at um, a company that he was um, selling. Uh, it made the blankets for the, it made the uh, coverings for the electric blankets. And, you know, this is, you know, this was the way that you created businesses because you had to so much fluff, so much um, lack of understanding of middle management, of where management was going, especially with big companies and then companies that are smaller. There's always an opportunity, um, but that opportunity did not call for collaboration. So this has been a learned, a learned process um, over 20 years of being part of, of the nonprofit world as well. And over 20 years, I have probably been on the board of over a dozen nonprofits. Yeah, but isn't that a great lesson for everybody to learn that, you know, people are capable of change. Oh, yes. <laughs> From yes. an authoritarian model to more of a democratic model. Yes, 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 yes. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you see as the primary leadership responsibility? I see it as not telling people what to do, but asking people what to do and listening to what they have to say. And, and then bringing them together and helping them and helping the company understand that the best ideas are collaborative. You know, I call it collective wisdom. The group often comes up with so much better than what I come up with. You know, but that's so antithetical, you know, to our educational model, you know, where the smartest person in the classroom always gets the most amount of airtime, right? And so we're conditioned from our early days that the smartest person in the room should be the one speaking and not listening. So that's something, I think that's another learned behavior because we're always looking for smart leaders, at least supposedly, right? We want the smart leaders, but then we want them to be you know, generous and, 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 and almost acquiescing a little bit, you know? And I'm wondering, you know, from your experience or, or you know, watching other leaders develop, you know, how, how does somebody who's been rewarded and reinforced, you know, throughout their whole lives, you know, to be, you know, the smartest person and then, to, you know, to be the center of attention to actually say, no, I want to hear from you. I think smart leaders understand that getting things done requires buy-in, um, even in a turnaround situation. I mean, I had a group of, of folks that I worked with, and it really, that group 
was my turnaround group and that was collaborative. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, as in any turnaround situation, oftentimes you have to cut a lot of fat out of the organization, restructure it. And, um, you know, not being involved constantly with turnaround situations, but rather doing something, as I say, um, doing well by doing good is what CFCR has provided. And I honestly believe for a lot of folks that are working in CFCR, the opportunity to make a lot of money because they are thought leaders of the industry with regard to regulation is just going to be amazing. And I think they see it too. So. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a very different model than I was ever used to. Yeah, but it almost seems like there's a, a sense of patience that the leader has to uh, inculcate and internalize that they, you know, where if, you know, where if they take that more authoritarian model, just do, do what I say, they could make things maybe a little bit more efficient, but it wouldn't be as effective. Well, I think you're right. I, I think that... Um, and I love how you say the authoritarian model. I never really thought of myself as authoritarian. And I hope <laughs> that's not how I came off, but I get my guess is Stephen, I did. <laughs> well, there's, there's, there, it's not a binary concept between authoritarian and, 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 and democratic. There's, there's a range in between. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when you're, when you're worrying about making payroll, and in my case, I have had, you know, lots of issues with companies I've turned around. Um, you're right. I, you know, I've, I've never, um, come to task or never come to, um, to actualization of what I must've been like in the past, but I, I much prefer this way of operating. I really do. Although making sure we're patient and we're getting things done is, is, um, important. Yeah. But you mentioned buy-in earlier and I'm wondering you know, doesn't that, you know, when you get buy-in, doesn't that take pressure off the leader when it, rather than instead when they just make the decision, uh, you know, in a silo that if, you know, everything comes back down to them, but if you get buy-in, one, you can be more confident in the decision, but doesn't that help take pressure off? Absolutely. It is wonderful well again it depends on what kind of buy-in oh you know if it's the, oh yes i agree with you or if there's real buy-in and yeah. frankly you're right about patience because real buy-in takes patience it takes people disagreeing with you and coming around sometimes to the way you think and sometimes you come around to the way they think and that is when you really get buy-in you know when you know when i talk to clients um and you know they're all you know, they're all type A, they're all hard charging people, they all are success oriented, and it can't happen fast enough. Um, one of the one of the modules that I that I teach is is called mental toughness. And basically, you know, mental toughness is the willingness to be patient and persistent when everybody else is losing theirs. You know, and so patience is one of the most difficult things for this group to, you know, to, 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 to master because they want things, you know, now or before. <laughs> okay. And if they could, yeah, it, it, that usually satisfies them, but I'm wondering you know, how, you know, how did you make that transition 
because you know you you know you, you were that person and you still are that person but you recognize that you know getting buy in and you know through patience is more effective so was it just that cost benefit analysis or was there something more to it you know one day someone said to me i really need to marinate on that and i thought what a stupid thing to say <laughs> <laughs> And frankly, it was really good advice because I recognized that oftentimes the first decision is the right one, but marinating brings different dimensions to things. You don't need to have a decision immediately and getting um, input only makes for better decisioning. So as a youth, I was very quick to decide, um, very quick to you know, seem like I was in charge. I knew what I was doing. I knew where we were going. And yes, um, now I enjoy the journey more and people enjoy being part of this journey and they give more. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just um, a very different world in some respects that we're in today. The way that the Sunbeam owls of the world, sorry, chainsaw owls of the world behave would not fly at all today, as you well know. Yeah, I'm sure you know. So, yeah. you know, part of it is really learning to enjoy the journey and not the result always, especially. You know, you know but that's that that's really where the rub is, isn't it, Sherry? Is that, you know, people are, you know, these these type A people, right? And I'm one of them, you're one of them, right? We want results, right? And so why do we have to, why do we have to wait for them when we know we can get them right now, right? But then we take this, 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 you know, we cross the chasm and we, we, we learn somewhere along the way that the process is actually more important, right? And, and, and we find that the process is more important. So therefore we actually get a better result. It may not be as, as efficient, but it's, like I said, but it's more effective. Well, if it's more effective, it's more efficient. I, I, I say that to you because if you're efficient and lousy, what do you have? Or if you're yeah. efficient and warm, but if you really, I, I changed, I, I changed the way I measure things. I changed my definitions of success. And Stephen, that may come with age. Um, definitions of success are not all about money. Mm -hmm. It's not all about achieving that next ring. Again, for me, um, I'm older when I was, I started turning around companies in my 40s. Mm -hmm. I'm now in my 60s. And, you know, I, I think about some of the journey that I was on that I didn't enjoy that I could have enjoyed. It was really quite exciting, but I was so busy trying to get to that next rung. I didn't even take a look and really look around and see where I was and what I had accomplished and took pleasure in that because it was always what's next. Right. So I'm going to ask you a really hard question, and I understand if you won't be able to answer it. Right? But this, you know, this emotional maturity thing is so important that if you can facilitate emotional maturity in people, yeah, you know, then you get the efficiency with the effectiveness. Okay. And so if you could turn back the clock and put your mindset, the mindset that you have now, 20 years ago, right? How would, you know, would things be different? And if they would, how would they be different? I'll tell you. I've thought about that. Okay. After my first LBO, I learned a lot. I understood a lot. 
and what I would have done differently is put somebody else in the position of CEO and taken a board seat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's how I would have done it differently. <laughs> yeah, uh, and where, where, where you maintain the role as an advisor rather than the, you know, a, a, rather than the execution person. Exactly. So I, as a CEO, was always reporting, even though it was my money and other people's money when I was doing turnarounds. And, I, you know, let me be on the board. Let me hold somebody else to account. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. So that, <laughs> so that leads to the next uh, question is, is about strategy execution. And so what advice would you give to other leaders regarding you know, executing strategy to the best of their ability and to the fullest amount possible. Well, if you accept the strategy and you agree, and generally speaking, strategy comes from the board, although it comes from the CEO and the board um, mm -hmm. together, um, then the tactics come. It's a problem when the strategy is not accepted by you or the people below, frankly, the people you work with. Mm -hmm. And Strategy is something that you just can't dictate. You can say, here's where I am, here's where I wanna go, this is the way I think we can get at it. And then out of the box, nothing ever goes straight. So you really do need to be strategic along the way and you have to be prepared to pivot and you um, may have had the most wonderful strategic plan, but as it plays out and as you're part of the journey, you can make even better decisions as you carry out what the goals and the ideas of the strategy are. Okay. So generally speaking, what have you found over your experience to be some of those things that cause, you know, an organization to pivot? Money, um, losing customers. Uh, in my case, I had a huge environmental issue in one of my companies um, brought to me by um, representations and warranties of the sellers, which was a large multi-billion dollar um, conglomerate, um, that weren't true. Um, so all of these things, they're part of business and you're constantly, constantly pivoting um, because things happen. Customers go bankrupt. Customers come in with ridiculously huge orders and are you going to be able to fill them? You want the money? Do you fill them? And I'm speaking from manufacturing because yeah. my background is 30 years of turning around manufacturing companies. Mm -hmm. um, you're that person who um, is the head of your, of your um, operations, leaves. Now what? Okay. They understand the machinery and the equipment and the inventory. Now what are you going to do? All of these things are basic day-to-day -day things that do make you pivot. Okay, so how would you describe a CEO who knows how to pivot? Like what are their, you know, what are their qualities? Um, someone who listens, who reacts, who's not afraid, is courageous, um, faces problems with honesty to himself, to the board, to the people they work with. Um, someone that has integrity. Integrity is critical. Your people are looking at you all the time and treating people with respect. Okay, so how do you get through to a CEO who may be lacking in some or all of those qualities? Because if they're, you know, if they're, if they're the opposite of what you just said, then obviously they're going to have trouble pivoting, which is only going to hurt the company. 
right? And obviously you're responsible for the company. And so how do you get that person who's reluctant and resistant to pivoting? There's a lot of ways, as you know. Coaching is one of them. Um, having your main people coached is something I didn't grow up with. Um, betting you didn't, but boy, it makes a big difference. Um, and if they're not coachable, then guess what? You're going to have to move on if you want, depending on the kind of organization you want. Um, if you want an organization where the CEO is just going to do the same thing, it's probably not the person that needs to be in the job. You know, there's, a, there's an old joke uh, about uh, irreplaceable people in that there's cemeteries are filled with them. <laughs> okay. So, so talent, you know, I believe me, I'm, I'm a, you know, I started my career as a, college, as a college football coach and talent is, is imperative, right? But being a, you know, a college football coach, I also realized that talent wasn't all that what it's cracked up to be because lots of times those really talented players don't pan out. And so you can have, you know, a CEO or a management team with tremendous talent, but if they lack those other skills, you know, that prevent them from change, from pivoting, then all that talent is negated. You know? Yeah. And so, yeah. And so, you know, like you said, you have to move on. Right. And so it becomes, you know, those things just become a career derailer. So um, I find it fascinating that, you know, that you know strategy is relatively straightforward and simple and you know and but you know it really comes down to when it needs to change that that can hang people up oh i i agree and i don't think any 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 strategic path is not straight mm -hmm. the strategic path usually the ceos i have um I actually did move ultimately into board positions and the CEOs that I have worked with have been able to pivot. But I have worked with CEOs that um, you hit on it, that don't have the emotional maturity. Mm -hmm. And they're really smart and you don't understand why they do some of the things you do. And usually within a year, uh, you can tell mm -hmm. that you have someone that, and, and this has happened to me, is too rigid and to set in a particular way that isn't working. And sometimes these people have to move on. Yeah, but it and just- they're, And they're not, and you're not able to coach them. Yeah, but it's, you know, the rigidity is on the opposite end of the spectrum of, of how we started this conversation of being open. Yeah, so, all right. So who were your leadership role models when you were younger and what did you learn from them? Well, I had a reluctant mentor by the name of Stuart Millar, who taught me how to do leverage buyouts. And he was, among other things, um, the owner of Piper Aircraft. He had, he had acquired it from Forceman Little. And um, that gentleman and how he worked was difficult and funny. He said, well, the only reason I do this is no one would hire me. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right he was not an easy person to get around but um i learned a lot about lbos from him you know i looked at some of the folks that did turnarounds as i mentioned sunbeam Al, and you know i used to think about you know cutting cutting expenses cutting marketing cutting 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 mm -hmm. and you know that's 
that is tough stuff. But um, I don't think anybody that I admire today were the people I admired when I did manufacturing and when I ran turnarounds. So mm -hmm. today, people that I admire are policymakers, um, our president, mm -hmm. um, the folks that work um, day to day in making the world better. Uh, I'm kind of becoming more of a, of a um, again, doing well by doing good. I, I think the world is moving in that direction. We have a lot more focus on social impact. And um, so I guess um, I'm trying to think of someone in the social impact space that I am really uh, think of as a great leader. And I, I can't, no one comes to mind. I'm blanking out. Okay. But you know, your transformation you know, is much like mine. You know, coming from, you know, football coaching where it's very top down uh, and, you know, coming from manufacturing, it's basically the same model. Right? And then, you know, we just made a shift, uh, maybe either out, out of necessity or out of uh, out of awareness, you know, to move, you know, to move to a much more democratic model. But I think at the end, you know, bottom line is we find that it's more effective. Well, you know, I can't, I cannot say it was my great insight. I got sick and I was sick for five years and that really gave me a sense of mortality, a sense of what was important, more of a need to have a purpose-driven life. Um, I think that happens to us also with age, but certainly it does happen when you have. Um, Absolutely. You have yeah. When, when there's a traumatic event uh, it, you know, and one, it, one, it gives you the time to think but it also can shape your perspective in, in, in a way that you haven't held before. Absolutely. You know, um, your values change. Yeah. Absolutely. Your values yeah. change. Yeah. But that's all part of the emotional, you know, of, of the maturation process is that it's not normal not to change. And, you know, people who, you know, who haven't changed, you know, it's, it scares me when I go back to, to, to a re reunion. And the person is exactly they were in high school. I was like, that's a problem. <laughs> you know, where there hasn't been any, any change and you had, there hasn't been any growth whatsoever. You know, what have your, you know, I, yeah, as a psychologist, I, I'm just, a, I'm just interested. So tell me about your life experiences, you know, and because that's how people change, you know, that's, you know, to be honest with you, that's how the neurons are reconnected in your brain that forms those different perspectives that have you, you know, has people change their values. Well, it, you know, it's funny you say the neurons that connect your brain because of course with cannabis, I've gotten interested in, and I have not indulged, but I'm so interested in the psychedelics because the whole idea behind psilocybin, I understand is it changes mm -hmm. the pathways. Um, it gives you different perspectives. I don't know, honest to goodness, I haven't done it, but what I hear from people, changing those neural pathways. Have you, I shouldn't be asking the asker. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't indulged either, but I've seen a couple of um, uh, documentaries and psilocybin is, uh, is our mushrooms. That's uh, right. And the other, you know, the other one that's uh, common is LSD. And they both started out uh, in the research realm as, you know, as of having not just great promise, but great results. But then in the sixties and then uh, politicians declaring a war on drugs, it just, you know, they, they recategorized them uh, into, I think, uh, 
I forget the term schedule A or schedule B or schedule two, you know, where they're, you know, illegal and, and dangerous drugs and under the right conditions, they can have tremendous effects, tremendous positive effects. But just like anything else, if you abuse it, it can have, you know, really negative effects. So uh, I think we're at a, you know, we might, we might be at an inflection point as far as reconsidering our views on drugs. What are, you know, what is a drug? What is a, you know, what, what's a positive drug? What is a negative drug? I mean, uh, Adderall, I mean, Adderall can be really helpful, but if you take too much of it, it's meth. That's really what it is. All right. And, you know, there's, you know, there, there are people all over from high school students on, on up who are addicted to Adderall. Right. And they can't get off it. And it's just doing tremendous damage to them. But they got on it because of the performance effects. So, uh, you know, but that's perfectly legal. Adderall is perfectly legal. So, same as Ritalin. So exactly. this whole thing and, you know, you know, being a performance guy, I, you know, I really got into the whole, you know, uh, drug culture as far as, you know, what works and what doesn't and why it works. Uh, and there are things in some places that really work. So, all right. So now that we're talking about cannabis and drugs, how do you, how do you relax and how do you celebrate? <laughs> um, I am a wine aficionado. Oh, no kidding. I started that back when I was an actor in New York. Um, I would, you know, I also had another job while I was acting. And when I wasn't making money, I was selling jewelry or I was waiting tables. But every week I would buy a wonderful bottle of wine. And in those days, $20 bought you a hell of a bottle of wine. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and that's how I uh, relax with a beautiful bottle of wine and a Coravan. So I'm always drinking a wonderful wine. Um, and Coravan keeps it fresh for weeks and weeks. So I don't necessarily go through a bottle. <laughs> You know, I, I grew up drinking beer and I haven't really drunk that since my early 30s. But if you if I can pair a, a really good bottle of wine with a really outstanding meal, it is one of my most favorite things in the world. And good company. And good company. Exactly. Yeah. You, you got to pair the company as well. All right. So when we're in Boulder, we're going to open up a beautiful bottle of wine. Oh, Fantastic. I a great meal. I'll get out there one day soon. Yes, there's a, there's actually a great restaurant that built right into the foothills. It's just gorgeous, and they have a great sommelier there. So great. Yeah, we'll be we'll we'll be in good shape. All right. So, um, Sherry, how can people contact you? Um, folks are interested um, in cannabis and cannabis investment. Um, they can contact me at Sherry S H E R I at Artemis Holdings, A-R-T-E-M-I-S, Holdings with an S, dot com. Well, terrific, Sherry. Well, I, I greatly appreciate your time and, and, and your insight. I know how busy you are. So uh, on, on behalf of myself and all the listeners, thank you so much. And Steve, thank you. And um, a thrill to be with you today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks again. All right. This is uh, Dr. Stephen Long. This has been The X Factor, and we will see you next time.